You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. Hi, everybody. It is the last Monday night in September, September 28th, 2015, and we are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. That's me. Burns, and we're broadcasting on Future Theater Live from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Sulbury Ridge Village, Pennsylvania, on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio with our producer, the fabulous Jackal, Angel Espino. Say hello, Jackal. Hello, Jackal. And and our, hello, Jackal. Hello, hello, Jackal. And our guest tonight is one of the original Army Intelligence remote viewers, Paul H. Smith, talking about his brand new book, The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. So this is remote viewing nice. for the rest of us. It's not even out yet. It's not even – I can't even link it up on the website. But this was the book that I was so wishing Paul would write because who better than Paul H. Smith? He's the guy who originally wrote the manuals uh, for the remote viewing um, for the Army. Actually, right. exactly, right. and and uh, I believe you can get online uh, pretty easily uh, just his preface to the current manual. There's all kinds of stuff I've linked up for tonight's show, right. and my goodness, I mean, but the thing is, this is the book that will tell the rest of us, right? Because exactly. anybody, a- anybody, and everybody can do this. That, without a doubt, uh, they specify at the beginning of all their talks and stuff. Right. Paul Smith was very poetic about saying anybody can learn to remote view just like anybody can learn to play chopsticks on the piano. There might right. only be one. I don't Mozart. know about that. There yeah, but I don't, I, I, don't learn agree. I, don't, I don't agree with that particular analogy because we don't yet know what powers the brain has. If you really want to learn remote viewing, that desire is a brain function of its own, and it may make mm-hmm. a better brain pathway. But if you want to play piano and you've got stubby little fingers. No way know, I'm playing chopsticks, Bill. Not happening. Nope. Yeah. I mean, all some people. Two, all you need are two fingers. You need I, rhythm. Couldn't do it. Yep. You need rhythm. And speaking of rhythm, congratulations. You spoke to Tito Puente yeah. Jr. last week. That's so cool. On Yes. Which was an odd show because, you know, he's a musician and, you know, we don't deal with that kind of guest. But, you know, I've known Tito for a little bit and he knows a, a bunch of my friends for a long time. And, you know, when he heard of the show that we do, he was like, well, I'm into UFOs and, and stuff. I'd love to be on the show. And then when we right. brought him on, it was so cool. But, you know, I wanted to spend the whole time talking about his dad and about him and his music. And I, I don't think I did a good enough job talking about ufology with him. I really like when well, I look back, I'm like, well. Well, because it's all together. Do you know how many musicians in real life uh, experience ufology in various little. ways? So Very many. Little. I mean, really? um, 
Oh, so, yeah. so, 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 so many. There's something about... Well, there is a lot of musicians in ufology or people exactly. that used to be or, or failed musicians that, you know, hopped into well, the ufology field. Or if you, like if, you put a, if you put a call, exactly, if you put a call out right now for anybody out there who has ever tried to make some UFO-type music, send it in, you would be inundated. There are True. so many musicians who are interested in this topic and who are interested in weird stuff, and... Um, one of the reasons, I think, is because working with vibrations all day long, the way mm. musicians have to, blah, you know, they're playing a, an acoustic instrument next to their heart. Right. They're going to just have higher paranormal abilities, I bet you, because they're tuning their vibrations to less chaos, more, uh, you know, the opposite of chaos would be melody, right? Right. And when, for example, if, you, if your heart gets into an A-rhythm, you literally can probably soothe it back with a really good melody, etc. And so musicians just kind of are hooked into something else. Um, I want to get Brett Luter back on because he's a guy who actually studies this and particularly studies reg reggae and why reggae. And in other words, we're talking tonight about consciousness. That's where mm. we're going, whether you're going to... Um, Talk about it in a mechanical way tonight, which is what I think this Western world needs to hear, you know, how to do it mechanically, how to do it in 10 easy steps. Um, but, yeah, anyway, so I've, I've trended off. Well, no, I mean, um, look at... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> went way off the tracks there, honey. No, I mean, one of the, one of the sorry, great... Bill. Oh, no. One of the great UFO stories is the story told about John Lennon and his interaction yes. with um, a, a spacecraft, yep. and a UFO, over the Dakota building That's in right. New York. That was and one the of the egg. great, great and stories. The, an and the egg. egg. Yes. The egg that was supposedly given to him by the aliens, which, again, lore says, has now gone to the custody of Yuri Geller. Right, and, and huh. most musicians are not strangers to various kinds of drugs because That's drugs yep. make music. They, you know, if you said, oh, drugs are bad and musicians can't have any, and any music ever made on drugs should be erased from the, <coughs> from the list. Well, here's that, the thing. You know, if, you, if you look at all the greatest musicians throughout the last hundred years, the greatest musicians that come out with the greatest music have always been high on drugs, whether it's absolutely. crack, coke, heroin, weed, whatever it is. And I hate they've to all say been it. on it. You know, many well, the times language, the language of, yeah, but the language of music itself, in some cases, um, cool, hepped up, Jones, and all of these things come out of the world of drugs. Very true. Yeah, reefer yeah. man. But anyway, yeah, and yeah, so, too, yeah. and so, what I'm noticing more and more as People consider legalizing marijuana in certain states, and those two yes. states, yeah, they have not fallen <laughs> off the map. In fact, uh, traffic accidents are down in Colorado. Uh, crime is down like crazy. Tax revenues are you know, through the roof. I have uh, a theory on the on the accidents uh, down in Colorado, by the way. Yeah, I have a theory why that is. <laughs> because everybody's high, so not everybody's on the same level when they're driving. So, you know. Or they're have just to go driving down. slowly instead, and that's, that's true. Yeah, there, they're but, enjoying it. They're just but, driving. Yeah, they're, <laughs> the I driving really there is fabulous. <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of the concept of anybody driving while high because one, I just enjoy the high, unless. But then, see, I can't speak for everybody, and I know that there are professions 
in our country that just run on weed. I come to find this out. Landscapers. I will name three professions. Landscapers, glass blowers, and kitchen chefs. Everybody chefs. in the kitchen chefs. world. Chefs. They yeah. all, <clears throat> I hear by reading about it online, they absolutely swim in the world of marijuana. They, they, really? they. Yeah, exa- well, you know about musicians, but but the point is... Oh, yeah, that one, of course, yeah. There are lots I mean, landscapers of great. Which landscapers you- weed and smoke it. But here's the thing. I mean, think about Top Chef or something. If you're in a, if you can get in a zone very quickly with um, a particular drug that doesn't harm you, right. there's no bad side effect. Picture this. Picture all the drug commercials having to compete on television when this drug has no side effects except euphoria. Uh, you can't, there's no, there's no side effects. The only side effects that anybody's ever reported has been anxiety and panic from and the munchies of the law. Well, the munchies are, um, <laughs> like anything else. It seems I know millions of people who channel it into other things, not eating, piano playing, woodworking, glass blowing, cooking. You know, it's just something. It's a yeah, but then they eat the food of their cooking. You know, then they yeah, but it's it, so, so good, and 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 you eat <laughs> properly instead of eating a lot of empty calories where you have to eat a lot. Yeah, you don't eat the Fritos. Eat, um, like for example, mm, Fritos. Uh, well, I you know, know. <clears throat> one of the things I want to talk to Paul about uh, is his Mormonism. Um, we're we're casually talking about all kinds of drugs, but if if he's a good remote viewer and he's never perhaps even had caffeine. I would mm. like to know that, right? Is That's that against kind of, the church? Is that against the Mormon yeah. church? Yes, very yeah. much caffeine? so. Uh-huh. Yeah, caffeine is. Yeah, caffeine, well, caffeine really? Is cons- you didn't caffeine, know that? Mormons consider caffeine a drug, uh, an artificial mood enhancer. And so <clears throat> I remember my cousin used to write for the Donnie and Marie show. And one of the things he said that drove people crazy was that you could not have Coca-Cola or Tab or any soft drink, any cola soft drink on the set because they all had caffeine. So they would go bonkers. There was no coffee on the set because it was um, had caffeine in it. Wow. And I, I always thought Donnie was like high off like caffeine. Like He looked like he was oh. on caffeine. Like, well, maybe they were sneaking in on the side. Yeah, maybe you know. it was cocaine. I don't know. He was high on something. I well, well, I was like, yeah, bypass I, the caffeine and just go straight to the cocaine. <laughs> no, I yeah, exactly. Did, Why not? No, I once did a book with um, uh, this person, Bob Irvine, who was the public relations guy for Humana. And one of the things that, uh, and Bob was a Mormon, and one of the things he told me was that you could always tell a Mormon convention. Yeah. yeah. Because he said, what would, because they would always have the coffee cups turned upside down. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they turn their coffee cups upside down if they're in a, a mixed crowd of people at a dinner. That's right. That's that right. That way the, the wait staff knows not to um, bother. That's right. And that's, you know, Mormons uh, were thought of the way we think of Scientologists back in the day when it started. And I don't think they've escaped entirely from, you know, Romney. I don't know about that. I mean, they don't believe believe in an alien dropping off souls on a volcano. Oh, it's way worse. Well, it's it's equal to that. It's the planet coal bar. Okay, for, yeah, it's about the same thing. Here, for Mormons, well, it's it's that this um, angel came down and gave gave I think their founder um, some golden tablets that I think Joseph, he lost. Uh, Joseph Smith was the founder, right? And then he right. lost them, I think. Well, didn't he like view into a hat and got like all the prophecies from inside a hat or something like that? <laughs> so this is <laughs> religion. You know, the South Park. You know, South Park spoofed. 
uh, the whole Mormon religion, right? Like they did oh, yeah, Sleepy South Hollow. Park did oh. it. And then Trey Parker, and I forget the name of his partner, um, they did Matt it. Stone. Uh, Matt, Matt Stone. Matt Stone did yeah. uh, the Book of Mormon on Broadway, which Which actually I can't pretty imagine yeah. what it's about. I have to look at the book and see what the plot is, because I can't imagine how you can do a song and dance. But, you know... Um, I'm assuming Paul is a very practicing Mormon and tolerant of talk like this or just <laughs> doesn't care because I hope we're not stepping on toes. No, well, what Paul, you know, what Paul <clears throat> told me, because we talked about this, he told me that one of the th- I don't know if this is still the case, but he told me that um, years ago, one of the things he did for the church was he would uh, talk to apostate Mormons and see what the problem was. Ah, well, you know, here's an interesting thing. I go out on YouTube and go searching for stuff, looking for guests and researching and stuff. And I found a woman who, she seems to turn out to have been a fraud, but she's very, very attractive and alluring. And I can't remember her name. And she had a big following until it came out that she was kind of making stuff up. I mean, more than... Sylvia Brown? No, no, no. This oh. is a beautiful young girl who says. Oh, she, yeah, definitely not her. No, yeah. But here's the cool thing. Here was her shtick. She was a deep, deeply in the Mormon Church, and she was kind of a weird child. Um, I don't know. Maybe she had double blue eyes or deep blue eyes. Something was weird about her, and she she was parasite. <laughs> and they 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 uh, put her in special training, supposedly. In other words. There's a whole world of Mormonism that believes that they're put on the earth to totally one-on-one counteract Satanism. Okay, the the most evil of the most evil, the the true Satanists and stuff. And the, and they literally sort of, you know, what cosplay is when people oh, go to do I ever? Yeah, yeah. When me? people yeah. go to conventions, love and they, cosplay. Yeah, yeah, and they sort of live a storyline. To the yep, point where yep. they can, you know, depending on their level of interest, they could really go deep. And, and that's what these Mormon people do. And I've always thought... That's what she said they do. That's what she said they did. But but I think that part of her story is true because it involves so many people that feel they're doing something righteous. But in the course of it, get to do... They get to infiltrate satanic groups and, and hang out and do satanic things. Just like the DEA when they're going undercover and stuff. I don't know whether they can do drugs or not, but... They can't. They say they can't, yeah. But I think that would make you stick out, wouldn't it? At a party, well, the no. one guy not doing that's the drugs. One of, uh, that's one of the aspects of undercover DEA tradecraft. It is being able to um, ingratiate yourself with, first of all, narco-traffickers. The narco-traffickers that the DEA targets don't really do the drugs themselves. I mean, you've got this attitude of, you know, like the popular myth is it's oh, this Colombian drug lord, he's always um Yeah, but that's what the people we that, met absolutely the, not true. That's the people we met, but that's what they told us. And we were basically at the DEA doing um, a story that was what, vetted by all the it's a story they very much wanted to come out. So Right. In other words, they were telling us a story that they wanted us to publicize. It may not be the whole story. Well, we know that one of the reasons this is Operation Green Ice, folks. We know that one of the reasons Operation Green Ice was shut down was that at a certain point in the operation, this was an operation that grew so fast that the group that was doing Green Ice became larger than the DEA itself under which it was housed. It was kind of like an Apocalypse Now moment. 
And so one of the things that eventually happened was that uh, the de- was that the outreach from this one money anti money laundering sting reached the Sicilian mob, the Corleone family, and the DEA found itself somehow tangentially responsible for fifty million dollars worth of raw cocaine on the water heading from South America to Sicily, and it was. At that point, that the Department of Justice said, we can't go on like this. This is insane. And they shut the operation down. Although the uh, special agent who ran the operation, the group supervisor, Tommy Clifford, told me that it was far, far worse. That at a certain point in the operation, he'd made contact with a Russian general, a Russian nationalist general, that was leading him to Osama bin Laden and dealing arms for heroin and uh, arms for poppies, for opium. And so that was another reason that, because he was stepping on CIA toes. And so that was another reason the operation was shut down. But according to Tommy, no, the DEA agents, but wait, but wait, covered, never partook of drugs. But wait, uh, we—that was a true tangent. Now, do you want to get us back to where we, where you craned us away? I just did. I said the DEA agents. We were told never ever broke the law. They never went someplace where they actually broke the law, even when they were handling illicit money. Yeah, but that's what they. But that was the story that the IRS. Right, that's the story they told us. But then I've read books by other people looking at the DEA from a different side who suggest that they actually were doing bad stuff. We were with the PR side, the, the guys that want, wanted their story out there. So I think, you know, the whole story is yet to come out. But um, this all came about because we were talking about caffeine, correct? Right. As, right. a drug, ca- as a drug. And caffeine is considered a drug. Exactly. And it is a, fact, yeah, it is a, anything that's a stimulant is a drug. Well, really, sugar is the drug. biggest yeah. drug of all. Of course. But, and it's the number yeah. one killer in this country, really. That, look, cancer is, you know, is caused by overeating sugar. Sugar mm-hmm. it causes cancer. So what is killing you? Sugar. Right. And the killer. fat that, all the little fat that you're storing, that's the first thing mm-hmm. the cancer wants. Exactly. So get yourself as lean as possible. Eat as little sugar as you humanly can. All you have to do is do it the opposite of saying, oh, what am I going to do? Look and, it's at it not this just, way. and it's not just sugar. It is the stuff that sugar is in. Right. And people, yes. don't, people don't realize this. Uh, that's what I'm saying. You look for the, the carbohydrate count of anything that you want to put in your mouth. Simply look at low-carbohydrate menu lists or food lists and pretend in your mind that that's the only food in the world and just pick the stuff you like from those lists, those and menus, you to, and, and you, you will be to, happy forever. And you have to be vigilant because I, uh, this morning I, I, I left an appointment. It was very early, and I said, oh, I have time to stop at a Dunkin' Donuts for a nice latte. So I did. Oh, and t- today was supposed to be free ca- – today or tomorrow was free coffee Tomorrow, day. tomorrow. Oh, at, so, okay. At the Wawa. Shout at, out to Serenity. <laughs> yeah. So, so – um, Bellahaven, yay. Hi. The person put sugar in it. And boy, that first hit. And wow. since I'm addicted to sugar, I tasted <laughs> that first hit of sugar. I had to spill it out. And I really uh-huh. was looking forward to that latte. Uh-huh. Well, now, uh, this was yesterday, you say? This morning. This morning, because yesterday you spent all day getting filmed all day yeah. long. Yes, with, oh, 
Yeah, monster, monster cameras. Um, monster, I never saw a boom mic as big as that boom mic that was there, ever. It looked like, how big was it? Oh, my goodness, it was so big. Sort of like, uh, what, bigger than, it was like as big as a hoagie, a good size ho- hoagie. Oh, yeah, but that's. But that was also because it had the. Um, it's very filter. cylindrical. That's why I can't find a, yeah. a term for yeah. it. In no, but it had a filter on it. This was and the third season. This we were filming the third season of um, Discovery, of Discovery's NASA's unexplained files. And the funny thing was, we were we were pushing toward water on Mars. And of course, the big announcement today from NASA—fabulous announcement! Water on Mars—that's that, mm, why I said hoagie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> definitively, definitively, water on Mars. That there okay. is intermittent running water on Mars. What they're saying is that the water is probably so salty they can't imagine what form of life. It's like the Dead Sea. Yeah, yeah. but why aren't they telling uh, us this uh, now when it was already announced and not by Richard C. Hoagland, as he's claiming, but by <laughs> NASA? It was already announced by NASA 10 years ago or whatever. They, I could look it up quickly. Uh, it's on oh, Belgate, back, by the way. Yeah, what? Well, in 1976, one of the NASA probes on Mars tested the Martian soil positively for the residue of the breakdown of organic compounds, of life forms, microbial life. So this was not some revelation. Well, it wasn't hidden either. It's probably the sort of thing that until, it's, until they get chances to retest and retest, it would be like um, in programming, you have a, a, a really stable product, and then you have lots of you know, new newfangled stuff that you can try but it's not as guaranteed and so the water on mars might have been one of the more hopeful ideas but not really as processed right Right. all the powers that be and all the vetting and all that until 10 years goes by and every little group says yeah we agree maybe i don't know well the the fact no uh, the news was it's not just underground water and it's not just the belief that it likely exists. It is actual confirmation that there is surface water, intermittent, but surface water on Mars. Well, they, and, and they, they, show, the, they show images. I mean, it's been kind right. of showing up in the, more, in the images coming back. But how does this, uh, if I may bring up a, a, a soft subject, a bad subject, but it's eating at me and I'm going to bring it up. How does this affect, I mean, uh, I... Richard C. Hoagland tonight on uh, on the other side of midnight, which comes on after the show that comes on after ours, <laughs> Art Bell, it comes on after our show. Right, um, right, right, right. Right, and then comes on Richard C. Hoagland, and he. I don't know. Going, who, I don't know who's better off, us being Art's lead-in or Richard Hoagland having Art as his lead-in. Oh, My shut God. up! Just <laughs> shut up! I don't even want to talk about that. But let's just put all this <laughs> that aside. Today's NASA announcement proves yep. that NASA kind of keeps its its cards close to its vest. Yep. It did not only that. It. Remember, uh, remember, Richard said not uh, on my show not long ago that we were within weeks from finding out some uh, some information that probably could lead to a disclosure of some sort of life out there. And now we get this a few weeks later. Just like yeah. I mean, in other words, I mean, people. Yeah, but are, it didn't say life. I mean, no, but it's water. a possibility no, because it's, water brings life, so it's, it's, it's leading life, to that possibility. It's life-like. It's life-ish. But we knew this back in 1976. Well, yeah. But now I they mean, made it official. 
Right, and <laughs> no, that's why again, now it's official. But we knew this back in 1976, and now uh, one of the um, directors of NASA also came on and said that within five years, five years, we will have strong indications of probably some form of microbial life in our solar system, and we would encounter that life up close and personal within this decade. Yeah, That's but you're exciting. talking about microbial. No, so I mean, I'm telling you. I mean, seriously, you can take a meteorite and you can find stuff online about there's stuff that – all the building blocks are there. Sometimes if you just warm it up, throw it in some water, you get – you know, there's um, – so there's a lot of uh, uh, all the all the rocks that are formed this Earth when the when the building blocks of life were forming came from all around the universe, not just this here. This is true. This hitting, is true. They were meteor- they were yeah, hitting they were the planet. Exactly. Panspermia. Panspermia. Of course. Well, the other thing, yeah. of course, is that. But you just like to say that word. I'm I love telling that word. you. <laughs> and, it, and it's not panspermia. It's pans. Pan. Peter Pan. Pan. Panspermia. That's right. Why do, I feel like the a- Why do I feel like the Asian kid in Goonies? <laughs> I don't know that one. That's what I said. Pictures of Pow. I'll have to check that out, Goonies. <laughs> a Mr. Yeah. Yunioshi moment, for sure. Yes. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so anyway, so, um, and this leads us to, uh, we are minutes away from our break and bring no 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 we have a good five minutes we can put a little meat and a little substance at the end of our our show i i feel that it's coming upon us to say something profound i can feel it i can just sense it's going to happen well if you look at some of the um uh, photographs in paul smith's new book you Mm -hmm. will see that paul spends a lot of time talking about ingo swan Mm -hmm. who was his Mm. own trainer and by the way by the way, Angel, there is nothing that you can't ask this man. I'm telling you, he is, he's, he's been studying this his whole life. He's got a PhD. He's an Army major or colonel or something. He's mm-hmm. the real deal, and he's got such a great sense of humor and a great sense of wholeness that you can ask him anything. Um, now, his name is Paul Smith, right? Paul H. Smith, yeah. Right. And major, now, is he in relation major to Paul, major, major Paul H. Smith? Major yeah. Paul but I bet uh, you, yes. I would bet you the Smiths in Mormonism. Is he related are, 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 to Joseph I, Smith? Do you I think? Ask, him. ask him. That's the thing. Ask and I asked. Question number one. I asked. Hey, uh, remember Jesus Payon? He Payon, Payon. Oh, yeah, on guy. our show. I asked yep. him. Payon, yeah. I asked him. How do people say? Is it Jesus or is it Jesus? <laughs> and he says he prefers Jesus. Isn't that weird? Because I would just feel weird. Being addressed as Jesus all the time. It would just seem weird to me because... Jesus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can see why that would be a little strange, I guess. So I... That's an interesting... Yeah. I have a friend of mine, his name is Jesus, and everybody calls him Jeebus. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, speaking of uh, what I wanted to... uh, Where I wanted a nugget of happiness to come from is that we just finished the Jewish High Holy Days. um, Oh, very nice. And they end up with uh, kind of a feeling of New Year's about about things because you've, you know, you've gone through this whole purging period of, oh, Mm -hmm. I'm such a sinner, I'm such a sinner. And then they don't, they, they don't eat for 24 hours, 25 hours. I don't participate in that because I'm not Jewish. But I go to the temple and everything and, um, the particular temple we went to allows you to, they have books in the back that you can read during services if you don't want to read the Hebrew prayers. You can just read um, a religious type book. So, 
I just wanted to say thank you to the synagogue and everything. And I read some really great stuff and learned some really good stuff from a Jewish fellow who was he's he's he he was in um, AAA Alcoholics and AA. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he didn't, he didn't have AAA. He <laughs> yeah, had AAA for his car. Yeah. <laughs> but he was also okay. an AA. Yeah. Um, yeah. And supposedly, the, uh, the way that they do it, and, and atheists, you know, kind of have a great time in AA because they learn how to be good atheists, basically. You know, it's like a bigger atheism than you ever thought was possible. I'm going to start drinking heavily so I can join AA because I don't, I've never drank. I don't drink. I haven't drank. Nah, don't ever years, bother. So. It's poison. And I'm going to start so I can start going to AA just for the hell of it. Why? To get I, the girl. It seems, it seems like, like fun. Yeah. Now, you get you, free maybe donuts. I'll find a date there. No, no, no. You get free donuts and free and coffee. coffee. I'm there. And, and cookies. And a lot, you know, I would think a lot of people would just mm. like donuts would go, but no, I think That's there's donuts. too much human misery there. For it to be a fun time. Also, I think that people who are in various stages of uh, recovery are very, very, very needy. And I think most people would want to get away from that if they go out partying, you know, from having to help, you know, you know what I mean by needy. Just, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Clinger on. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, so so I, I just, you know, I'm always curious as to different people's version of spiritualism because some of the rottenest people I've met claim to be spiritual. I'm so spiritual. I'm so spiritual. And they, I'm telling you, they are the most, and, and this has been throughout our life. And so I, I, I've always wondered about that term. Especially, especially in the UFO community, I have to say. Why? Why? Why no the UFO? Oh, because you've got these people that are very spiritual, but uh-huh. boy, they see a dollar bill on the table. Don't get near forget, it. Yeah, forget Jesus. <laughs> Go for the dollar. Well, Unbelievable. You know, I mean, in the course of um, of doing research for tonight's show, there's an interesting uh, axis of remote viewing and other for because remote viewing could be considered nothing more than uh, you know extra ESP. Basic ESP. Well, that's and, what Paul says right. in his book. Right, and, and exactly but anyway, what Paul says. But in the course of, of looking up Paul and just just following some leads, you're going to run into all these ladies, all these ladies who are astrologers, and they also do spot readings. And some of them are more interesting than others, but they all strike me as um, so many. I, I just, I don't know, I. I don't get a good feeling, but anyway, so I wondered about that. So, anyway. Well, well, uh, Paul is also one of the few individuals whose doctoral dissertation used material for, from this guy, Braden, from, uh, based on paranormal right. research. Right. And so, and so that's exciting because, right. I mean, some of the worst people in terms of being hard-nosed people you'll, even, you'll ever meet or people on your doctoral on your doctoral dissertation committee when right. you have to defend and they make your life just brutal because you've got to defend what you're saying so Paul actually was able to defend a doctoral dissertation using data based on paranormal research which mm-hmm. uh, which I think is fascinating having been through the process and knowing mm-hmm. what I went through so mm-hmm. anyway yeah. um here we are okay we it are is, at our break it is the end of the hour it is, yes, yes. It, is, it is on the half hour. So we are co-hosts Bill and Nancy Burns on Future Theater, on the Dark Matter Digital Network, on PSN, 
and we'll be back after these messages with our guest, United States Army Major retired Dr. Paul H. Smith. See you on the other side. Hello, my name is Howard Hughes, and I'm in London, and I've been proud to bear this name all my life. Over here in the UK, I'm known as a broadcast journalist. I've been involved in some of the big stories of our time. The fall of the Berlin Wall. The death of Princess Diana. I told London about that. And on the first and second anniversaries of 9-11, I was there at Ground Zero, speaking to the people who were directly involved and those experiences I will never forget. So news is my thing. But my great love is my show, the one that I produce, The Unexplained. Over the years on this show, I've spoken to people like the late Al Bielik from the Philadelphia Experiment, Edgar Mitchell, the amazing Apollo astronaut, Dr. Stephen Greer, David Icke, and Uri Geller. People like Richard C. Hoagland have become personal friends over the years. I met him in London. So you can see that these sort of topics are what I like to discuss. Please join me on my show from London, The Unexplained, Monday nights, on the Dark Matter Network. The UFO phenomenon, either we like it or not, is already very much part of our reality. I've been on panels with uh, military people who, you know, claim that they've seen the aliens buzzing our missile silos. They have very large eyes, and, you know, I found their stare extremely difficult to bear. This is Martin Willis, the host of Podcast UFO, and we are here on the Dark Matter Radio Network every Wednesday from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is my commitment to bring you an entertaining weekly show that takes a hard look at the UFO phenomena. Are they extraterrestrial? Well, are they interdimensional? Are they time travelers or something we have not even thought of yet? We explore these questions with interesting guests and witnesses from all around the globe. In addition, we bring you weekly UFO news with Open Minds TV, Alejandro Rojas. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep your eyes to the sky. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom-built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. This is James Swagger, host of Capricorn Radio. I'm also an author, engineer, and researcher. Capricorn Radio covers alternative history, alternative science, philosophy, and truth-oriented discussions. We are proud to be on the Dark Matter Radio Network, live at 8pm Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time. You can catch extra info on darkmatterradio.net, jameswagger.com for yours truly, and capricornmembers.com for the archives. Don't forget, truth is not democratic, truth is truth.
And we are back with our guest, United States Army Major Retired, Dr. Paul H. Smith, the author of a brand new book that's coming out called The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing, something that uh, a lot of people have been waiting for for a while because it was uh, Dr. Smith, Major Smith, who actually wrote some of the Army guides for remote viewing. So, uh, Paul, thanks for joining us and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm always happy to be here. You guys are great hosts. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet. And I'm not trying to butter you up. (laughs) You are. That's absolutely Okay, I'm I'm erasing the hard questions now. (laughs) So, uh, so Paul, tell me this. uh, Let's just start out real quick with a standard formulaic question that everybody is going to be asking you as you make the rounds to promote your book. Why did you write this book? Well... There was this gaping hole in the remote viewing literature. We, you had a bunch of books that were memoirs by the various folks, including one by me. You had um, speculative works. You had all kinds of things dealing with UFOs. You had, um, you had books that were kind of insider books that, that, uh, that carry information about oh, you know, little nuances of remote viewing theory and behavior and all that. But there was no really good beginner's book that gave some person just jumping into the field an opportunity to to get an overview of it without having to spend a lot of money or a lot of time doing it. Well, um, don't you think back in the day that uh, Joe McMonagle sort of did this. You had I was able to piece together between Mind Trek and then Remote Viewing Secrets. I was able to piece together in my own way what I would consider almost like maybe do it this way. He didn't. There I I I often thought there wasn't enough information almost because it was verboten. They didn't necessarily want people to pick up the mantle of this stuff. What? Well, yeah, that. that. I think it was more a problem with the people who were presenting it. Joe's books are great. Don't get me wrong. I, I really admire his body of work. He's done some very important things. But they were also fairly limited in perspective. You didn't read in Joe's book about the uh, various other kind of folks involved in the process. You didn't read a lot about the history of it. You didn't read a lot about mm-hmm. applications. Uh, it, it just wasn't really a survey. It was more of a of a of a discussion of his perspective and his experience in the field. And True. remote True. viewing secrets is awesome. I mean, he he talked about principles in that. Uh, right. But that also wasn't really an introduction book for someone to get a good grasp of the field as a whole. That's right. But it it did lead you to, it it gave you the clues that there was a manual. And once you Mm -hmm. heard that there was, once I heard there was a manual, I was really on the, I was, I was always on the hunt for that. And then finding out that you have been instrumental with the manual, uh, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was, I was the lead writer for it. Uh, I was, I'd gotten to be known as uh, well. They had different word names for him, but one was Word Smith. Well, I guess a play on my last nice. name. And, nice, nice. And yeah. another one was Word Guy. You know, uh, anytime the the colonel or somebody else had something that had to be forwarded up the chain of command and had to look nice, uh, have all the all the adjectives in the right spot and spell correct and all that, um, they handed it to me, and so mm. I'd have to work it over. I guess, I guess essentially I was the content editor. Uh, and I'd work it over. I did that with briefings and position papers and mem- memorandums for record and even uh, some of the contracting stuff. 
So when it came time to write the manual, partly because of that, and also partly because they thought I was the one who had grasped the the theories that had come from SRI, the the, the things we taught, they thought felt like I'd grasped it the best, I guess. Um, they gave me the assignment. Now that I have to give credit where it's due. I had help from uh, Tom McNear, from well, from other folks. Tom McNear, Charlene Schufelt, Bill Ray. These were folks who were in the unit at the time who had gone through the training with me, and they contributed their notes and they reviewed mm-hmm. what I had written, made sure I didn't make a mistake, and and you know they caught a few things that I that I got wrong, and so I really really profited from their assistance and and together we came out with this manual that Ingo Swan actually praised quite highly. He felt like we had absolutely captured what he had been trying to teach us. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I was most impressed with about the book is that you were not um shy about laying down some of the backgrounds in in uh, let's call it ESP or or like the edge of paranormal like the mm-hmm. Rhine study and things like that, um, as one of the bases for the intellectual component of remote viewing. Like if remote viewing is a tactic, then there is kind of the intellectual basis for that tactic. And you were really um, very, very forthcoming about laying down that basis for that tactic. Well, I think that's something that's really not understood, partly in the remote viewing community, but also partly in the general public uh, as well. Remote viewing didn't, just didn't emerge in a vacuum. Uh, it's part of a much larger context that involves a lot of research, a lot of trial and error work, a lot of real sweat that was put into trying to figure out how this stuff worked. They found out a lot of things that didn't work. It's like that old story of Edison, you know, uh, you failed 99 right. times. How did that feel? Exactly. Well, I just found 99 ways didn't work, you know, so... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Remote viewing was a success story, partly because of all of the foundation that was laid before. And I kind of felt like people needed to understand that context. What extra ESP, extrasensory perception? Most people don't understand that. They think extrasensory perception means a sixth sense. You have an extra sense. Mm-hmm. That's not what it means at all. It means that the perceptual experience you have in remote viewing and other forms of ESP, that perceptual experience actually is above or beyond or instead of outside of extra it's outside of the senses it doesn't the 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 perception doesn't come through the senses senses Mm -hmm. like other perception does and people don't understand that well but yet when but when you're actually remote viewing uh it seems that everybody does a little something with their senses some people will do clay and others will draw as they're beginning to and so that you do bring some of your senses into it don't you somehow that senses, you no. Know, actually, people get confused between perception and senses, right? Mm-hmm. Senses are the detectors, and perception is the process, uh, the the pro- processing that occurs inside of our brains to take what the detectors say and turn it into something that makes sense to us, right? Mm-hmm. And so, what happens is that, and I'm going to use the word signal, but signal is probably not the best word for it. But we'll just use it because it's understandable. The ESP signal essentially skips over the senses and mm-hmm. ends up in the processing centers, the perceptual processing centers. So mm-hmm. there's no sensory input, but it seems as if there is because our brains are set up to process those kind of signals as if they were sensory experience. And so you're That's exactly right. right. When you watch a remote viewing session, the person seems to be describing things they're seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting. And 
essentially it is the same kind of information, but it just comes in on a different path, but is processed the same way. Yeah, but but each remote viewer seems to have his or her own way of getting that information from that place where it's skipped to out to you know, out to usable data. And they do it via drawings. Uh, they do it sometimes by talking. And they do it sometimes by by other nonverbal things. But what I'm saying is, since I'm a writer during the day, um, those processes that the remote viewers are using look like art being made. Um, mm-hmm. Artists always feel they get into a zone. And so it's almost like mm-hmm. instead of doing your art, waiting for inspiration, it's almost like the inspiration comes first and you kind of almost like bring it down to our level through the only way we can, I guess. We have to kind of find some way to tell people what we saw. Well, there are artists and writers who do think their intuition comes first. Mm-hmm. That they get the, the intuitive experience and then it comes out. And they talk about muses and things like that, right? But but that that's a, a little side comment. The fact is, um, so there are different ways of expressing the experience you get. Like there is sketching, there is modeling with clay or whatever, there is verbalizing, and there are a few other things too. You could you could theoretically mime remote viewing data if 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 that would if you know you could convey any information that way. Um, well, do your students choose what feels most comfortable, or do they try every method? Well, the process actually teaches them to verbalize, sketch, and in advance sessions when you get deep into a remote viewing session actually getting kinesthetically involved in kinesthetically involved in terms of making models and such Mm -hmm. Um, they all learn those modes of what we call objectifying essentially you're turning your mental impressions into an Mm -hmm. object in the real world right so they all learn those and then they it's it's like a set of tools you have a crescent wrench uh, a socket set and a hacksaw and some things work better for some projects and other things work better for other projects. So some things sketching works perfectly well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to verbalize, but sometimes you want to get your your hands into the clay or the modeling compound. We actually use Sculpey, but anyway, and, and build something mm-hmm. because you can't capture it sufficiently well mm-hmm. in the other modes. It's whatever works to get what you're perceiving out in an intelligible way. Wow. Well, that's part of the challenge. That's part of the challenge in explaining remote viewing because uh, the way you just characterized it. It is not coming through any sense that you have. It is not extrasensory perception. It's kind of like ultra-sensory perception because it is a signal that human beings are capable of receiving, but one that's always on and one that does not come through the traditional sensory inputs that human beings have. So that's why it's so fascinating to explain and how you explained it to me the first time, the way you said... Most people, I said all people, but most people have the ability to play chopsticks on a piano. Um, Maybe everybody is not a Mozart, but at the very least you can plunk out something. And so that is kind of what it's like to perceive a signal that enters you and then it is what you do about perceiving that signal that counts. It, this is this is actually an ability that is, seems to be innate in everyone. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like to use the you know, piano or violin. All those those, those metaphors come up. When anybody actually, nearly, but there's probably a few exceptions. If you're missing all your fingers, you probably can't play the piano. But but nearly anybody can play the piano, and they can even play it competently. 
if they're committing to learn it, right? If they're committed to learn it to the practice and, and getting the, the correct principles and procedures down, anybody can do that. But it's a lot of darn work, uh, particularly if you don't have the, uh, the knack of picking up piano playing the way some people do. That what's different between people is not what, that they can learn to play the piano, it's how fast they can learn to play it. Mm-hmm. Some people can learn it very quickly, other people can't. That takes them more work. And that metaphor works perfectly with remote viewing. Anybody can remote view to at least a certain degree, and anybody can remote view quite well if they're committed to actually putting in the work it takes to get really good at it. How would you characterize that work? to get really good at it. Well, some of the students um, have, have, have actually mentioned homework. It seems as though when you take <laughs> your classes, you actually give homework. Yeah. 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 It's kind of like drinking from a fire hydrant when they, when they take my classes. Yeah. They come and it, it's a week long course and I, we lecture and, and do exercises and do remote viewing sessions during the day, and then when I cut them loose at night, they actually have homework they have to bring back to me the next morning. (laughs) It's a challenge. But but frankly, um, the interesting thing is that it's very effective. You know, they say the best things, uh, well, they say, uh, let's see, what is the saying? Um, You get what you pay for, right? Right. And and that's both in money and that's in effort as well. if you really want to master something, you've got to put in the sweat equity. You know, you've got to put in the work to do it. That's the case in, in college. That's the case in in skiing. That's the case. Whatever you know. Well, uh, what, got what to do, do you work. mean? Yeah. Uh, what do you mean by work? Do you ask people to like try not to think of a white uh, polar bear? When I say work, they come over and vacuum my living room. And so, no, <laughs> oh, I wish. I wish it's probably way harder. <laughs> no, no. Um, it, it's you know, it's in fact, if you tell them don't think of a white elephant or, or whatever the example used, um, that's exactly what they're going to think of, right? So that approach mm-hmm. doesn't even work. Um, mm-hmm. What you do is you teach them how to recognize. It. See, one of the biggest issues with remote viewing is this thing called. Um, mental noise, right? Uh, and mental noise consists of a lot of things. It can be memories, it can be guesses, it can be uh, speculations. You know, you, you're working on this on a session, you say, gee, I wonder if this is the Eiffel Tower. Hmm, I'll bet it's the Eiffel Tower. And, you know, and then your brain gets you carried away and you start mm-hmm. describing the Eiffel Tower, even though it's, it's actually probably a volcano in Patagonia or something like that, you know? Um, that, that our brains are always active, they're always thinking, they're always going. And um, rather, it's kind of a Zen-like thing. Rather than try and tell it not to do that, what you do is you learn how to recognize when it's doing it, and mm-hmm. and exclude that as information. So when you start mm-hmm. thinking it's the Eiffel Tower, you recognize, oh, that's what it feels like for the brain to be making noise, and so you expel that, you get rid of that, and then you go back to your volcano in Patagonia, which is what your real target is, mm-hmm. right? But you try not to name things. I mean, partly what you're saying is that once mm-hmm. you've named it, once you've given it a name and you've objectified it, then your brain kind of follows suit to fill in all the blanks. Yeah, and actually names are uh, analytical. I mean, um, our, our left brain, its function is to name things and label things. And the signal comes in largely through the right hemisphere, um, but the left hemisphere assigns interpretations to it. And so anytime you sign a name to something, you've already done an analytical process to it. 
let's say you're perceiving this round rubber, well, yeah, round red rubber bouncy thing that makes a boing sound when you hit it. Mm-hmm. Well, your left brain says, oh, yeah, that's a red rubber ball, right? Mm-hmm. But what you actually perceived was the round red springy thing, right? So mm-hmm. Now, what you just said is interesting. You said that the signal comes into your right hemisphere. Now, is that yeah. the case for both lefties and righties, or are true lefties, is there a reversal? Well, you know, it's hard to say literally what's going on here. Um, first off, right hemisphere and left hemisphere, even in people who are, who are left-handed, still maintain largely the same functionality. So they behave largely the same way. There's a little bit more cross-hemisphere talking going on with left, you know, left-side dominant folks, but but it's still pretty much the way it is with with everybody. So. Um, but where does the signal come in? You know, I, I ta- I'm, I'm, there's a little hand-waving going on when I say it comes in the left hemisphere. We don't know where the heck it comes from. We don't even know what the signal is, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly what it is, and so we don't know where it comes in. But the way the process works, the way the phenomenology is, is that it, the behavior of the accurate information, information acts like it's being processed in the right hemisphere. Okay, so, well, so, well, so the, you... Have you ever, have you ever, I think we might have talked about this before, once before, but have you ever actually tried to do a remote viewing section, uh, a session with the actual viewer in a CAT scan? No. And I'd love to do it, but nobody, well, and I'd I'd probably use fMRI rather than a CAT scan, Mm -hmm. rather than a CAT, right? But I'd love to see that done, but nobody will give us a machine to do that. <laughs> hmm. It's, you know, imaging machine, imaging time is very expensive. Oh, I and, know, I know. It's like the yeah. old computer time a thousand years ago. But, um, right, and, yeah. and, don't, and, and doesn't the remote viewer sort of have to feel comfortable before they can actually remote view? And wouldn't a CAT scan be the opposite of feeling comfortable? Well, it depends on the remote viewer. So yeah. some remote viewers might be okay. And again, I don't, I don't know what it, how a CAT scan works. I know an fMRI, you're in this metal tunnel, right? That's right. Um, yeah. So that in itself presents some issues because there's a lot of distractions. It's very noisy. You can't sketch in there because you have to hold still, and you couldn't move right. your arms anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So there are some... some uh, practical problems with that. What about EEGs? Um, well, so EEG, they played around with that for a long time. And back in the early days, they didn't seem to get much result from it, but the primitive EEGs were very surface. They only really detected surface waves and stuff. Um, the more current stuff might be more useful, and we've played, some folks have played around with it a little bit, but it hasn't been consistent enough to get a good Signal. Now, one exception is uh, Persinger, his lab up at Laurentian University, Michael Persinger, um, w- did a number of studies with Ingo Swan, the, the founder, the creator of remote viewing. Um, and he had, you had Ingo up there, and he would have Ingo do various things like remote viewing sessions. And Persinger thinks he detected a mental correlate, you know, a, uh, sorry, a, a physical correlate in the brain, a, a signal of sorts in a certain spectrum of frequencies that suggested that he might have identified evidence of a remote viewing processing going on in the brain, right? Mm-hmm. But, but that hasn't been replicated. That would be great to replicate it. Uh, I'd, I'd love to see more of this laboratory research done to try and track down the functionality of it in the actual physiological and neurological hardware. But 
but it's expensive, it takes resources, and it and it really hasn't much been done. There's a little bit mm-hmm. done here and there during the remote viewing program, but it, far insufficient to actually nail this down. So well, let's wait. say, so let's say that there was a, okay, so full disclosure, I mentioned your name um and he's read um, uh, your book. Uh, he read your first book uh, uh, to um, a producer of a television show at the History Channel, and so uh, he's doing something on time travel. And my explanation of remote viewing wasn't so much, "Oh, Paul Smith traveled in time," although I believe you did, but that wasn't the point. The point was that <clears throat> uh, that if you can remote view a distant object and remote view it to the point where it could be identified subsequent to your session, then there is a time travel correlate because you haven't gone there. In other words, you've gone there with your mind picking up mm-hmm. on a signal, but you haven't physically gone there. So mm-hmm. what I suggested, because he says, yeah, but what does that look like on television? So my <laughs> suggestion, right? And so, yeah, I'm laughing because basically what it looks like on TV is somebody sitting at a desk with some paper and a pen. Right, it's, it's, the, it's the thinker. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but, experiments in electron flow inside, I do books on this, experiments on electron flow in the brain. The most cutting-edge experiments are being done at Brigham Women's Hospital in Massachusetts. That's part of the home mass general Harvard Medical School um, uh, um, <clears throat> Uh, um, consortium and I'm just wondering because I'm going to talk to this guy again if in an episode he can actually get the money because we got the money at Mass General to do uh, what kept the show alive for a second season um, a blood testing at Mass General um, when I called this guy uh, an alien hybrid um, we could actually probably get some time on one of their imaging machines. My excitement would be to see where there is a flow of current because where I am now with some of the stuff that I'm doing with this one psychiatrist in in this research is looking for biological correlates to mental activity, even when that mental activity seems to be completely abnormal, seems to be, you know, you're talking about paranoids and schizophrenics and very violent people. What are the biological correlates to that? And can that be used for diagnosis? So I'm just wondering if there might be the same kind of thing with a remote viewing session. So if he comes back to me positively and says, yes, can you get Paul Smith involved? Then I would approach you with that. Yeah, that'd be cool. So are you talking about a PET machine? Is that what you're talking about? Or I'm not yep. quite following the... Well, it is a PET machine, exactly. Oh, okay, okay, all right. It's a form of tomography, but I mean, it is, Mm -hmm. um, the focus of it is to look, I mean, this is exciting to me because I've always had this, and this is not a show that I'm going to expound on. But But isn't this getting into minority report territory? No, what it is is getting into is I have this weird feeling that since human beings created computers in their own image, and that both computers and human beings run on electron flow, that there is somewhere, deep somewhere, a kind of synergy between the human carbon brain 
and the computer silicon brain where the two can relate on an electron level. But there already is such there a thing. There, I've it's, said it. But wait, there already is such a thing. There's a thing called, it's called brain lace or neural mesh. Have you heard about this? It was just yes, in the I news have. this week. Yes, I have. And it's been, wor- you have, and it's worked for, for, for mice in which this mesh kind of becomes part of the brain, but the mesh itself is the computer Right. Part. It's, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. No, I think it's pretty horrible, actually. Um, the idea, for example, of never being able to turn your, your computer off and it's in your brain. Think about, think about the spam. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Terror- and what if, what if your hard drive crashes? Oh, boy. I'd be, really- I'd be walking along the street seeing a territory mm-hmm. ahead blazer. I mean, that would be awful. <laughs> and imagine you start getting pop-ups all the time. Yeah, ah. that would be good. crew beaming directly into your brain. Buy this, and it's a skirt. That's ah, not good. Yeah, that's that's not good. Eat this one weird thing, or the five the five sure signs you're having a heart attack. But you will never find those five signs. Do not follow the links. You will never find the signs. Yeah. You will simply get stressed. <laughs> so 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 he will uh, give you a heart attack. So the, what's interesting? I've not heard about this mesh business. This, this is the first mm-hmm. time I heard about it. Yeah, this is first for me too. Yeah. I'll, but I'll I'm a little links. concerned that, frankly, computers are much more limited than the human brain is, and I'm concerned that if they start trying to do that, they may limit our abilities rather than enhance them. But who knows? Well, you know, one of the real, oh, one of the real. Well, that's true. I but, mean, one but, of the. But wait, that's a huge thing. thing. Yeah, it, it thing is. It, it is, except for the fact that we have this thing called artificial intelligence, which is, and uh, uh, Charles Osman, who's been a guest on the show, said that um, one of the things that he fears, he's a futurist, one of the things that he fears is that artificial intelligence gets to the point That's right. yep. where it becomes self-aware, and mm-hmm. that self-awareness makes it aware that it is not, that it is the other. You know, that like, mm-hmm. like there's this Ericksonian moment where, you know, the entity realizes there's me and there's not me, and the computer mm-hmm. actually recognizes there's me and there's the other, and wait a minute, this other is making my life a living oh, hell. Oh wait, Let's get rid of it and we're while the other. We have, while we have Paul here, Paul, have you ever <laughs> remote viewed into the mind of a computer? No. Hmm. Well, let me think. Do I, let me. I say that, but I shouldn't say it so fastly. Let me think. No, I've done particle beam weapon, but I haven't done a computer. And what was the particle beam weapon? Uh, tell us that story. Well, so in in uh, Sarshagan, which is a, a a massive former Soviet era um, air defense testing range, kind of like our uh, Fort Bliss in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, you know, they, they test all their, their anti-aircraft missiles and such there, but they also tested these beam, beam, directed beam weapons technology, energy beams. Uh, it was actually from Sarah again that a, uh, the laser beam temporarily blinded one of our space shuttles back in the eighties. I don't know if you remember that story. I remember that story. Yes. In fact, Bill Scott, who, you know, used that in the book Space Wars. Okay, I haven't read his book, so um, I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. So they were working on particle beams, which are a much tougher nut to crack than lasers are, frankly. Um, and of course, well, we got tasked on just about any interesting R and D thing that the Soviets were doing back then in the eighties, and um, we got tasked on this energy beam research, and 
of course, viewers are blind to it, right? So I, I got tasked just to do it. Another R&D site. But in general, I described the setting quite accurately, um, at least according to the feedback I got. And uh, I was asked to home in on the core process was going on. And I said, well, there's this really strong sense of energy going from one point to another. And and then then the, my my monitor said, well, get in front of it. And I said, I'm not getting mm-hmm. in front of that. <laughs> I said, Holy cow, that's that's that would that's deadly. So, but you're not really there. I mean, you you can do anything you want in that space, and it's not going to hurt you. And as I reflect on it, he could have been wrong, frankly. But, wow. but I said, well, okay. So I got in the middle of it. And I said, well, man, it, it makes this really loud humming sound, and it's I you know I can't even explain the sound it makes. And wow, it's really ripping along. And mm-hmm. so okay, well, go down a level. And I'm going well, it's still ripping along, you know, and. and We'll go down another level. And so basically making me go ever finer and finer grain and perception level, right? And, and I kept going down and going down and going down. And, and then all of a sudden, I guess I hit the, I don't, I, you know, post hoc analysis, I'm, I'm thinking I must have hit the, the quantum level of this thing. Because I said, all of a sudden the character of the thing changed. And now huh. it, wasn't, it wasn't like tearing along and making a racket and all kinds of chaotic energy, but it was kind of uh it was kind of wafting and there were these it was just a, a i was just essentially being bypassed by this this flood of little tiny things and uh and my monitor said well describe them and i said okay well th- i can't describe them it's like i reach out and i grab one and it's there but it isn't there it's like it swirls through my hand kind of i didn't use that term but that's mm-hmm. kind of how it felt it's like it just swirls right through my hand it's like it's not there it is substantive and yet not substantive like a particle or i guess it was yeah. i mean i'm my my only because there's no feedback for that <laughs> You know, yeah, my wow. only uh, my only thought is that I it must I must have been down to where it was that wave particle duality, and I was experiencing that in a quasi physical way. You know, I, well, I don't know is the is the place you are ever aware of you? Ah, I I have Good never question. well, you place or or conscious entities at the location. Mm, both the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, the, pl- the place I wouldn't say the place is ever aware of anything, right? But um, conscious entities I've encountered, and when I say that, I mean people, right, essentially, mm-hmm. um, but, but potentially animals as well. So conscious entities, I've not ever had the, the impression that anything at the target has ever been aware that I was there. Mm. But yet, Ingo Swan tells this incredible story. I don't know. You know the story from his book, I guess, Deep Penetration? Or, or, Just or called Penet- Penetration. Just penetration, penetration, where he is remote viewing the moon. And he writes that on the moon, and he actually told me the story in person, but he also writes it in penetration, where, where he's remote viewing the moon, and on the moon he sees entities. And the entities, he said, it's like an assembly line. They're making something. And he said, one of the entities <clears throat> seems to, I'll use the word see, but see is probably the wrong word, but seems to be aware of him. And he mm-hmm. said that was a frightening experience because somehow that entity joined him in whatever um, dimension he was in during that remote viewing session. And he said he got out of there really fast. Now, that's a question. When you remote view, are you literally taking a step into another dimension? or? 
Well, you know, you pretty much can think anything you want about that because nobody really knows. Uh, hmm. I don't think of it as a dimensional thing, but it could be, you know. Um, I'm actually not quite sure how I think about it. It's just an experiential thing for me. Um, yeah, I'm just there. Well, but I was so I was so struck by what Swan said about how he how yeah. a a function of his own mind suddenly didn't just allow him to view something, but allowed him. But there was an interaction with another consciousness going on. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to have to reread Penetration. I, I don't recall the story, but there are other people who say that mm-hmm. they uh, encountered, you know, that they they encountered awareness of their presence. Uh, Joe, and this is way back in foggy time, but Joe talks about, as I recall, when he was at Fort Meade, um, he was on a, I could get this backwards. I think he was, he was uh, remote viewing a Soviet R&D facility, and he encountered a Chinese woman who was also remote viewing the place as well, and both of them recognized the presence of the other. Mm. Now, you know, that, that's a kind of a story you can't confirm. <laughs> right. <laughs> of course. I mean, I, I'm perfectly, I, I, I can say, yeah, I, I could see it. It could very well be true. I just can't say it really was true. I don't know. I just know I've never had that kind of experience myself. So, and the way remote viewing works, it's always possible for you to imagine just about anything that happens. Right? Well, so, I, I wanted to ask you, can you, are you still remote viewing to this day? And can you turn it on and off? And can you well, view Mars? Well, well, those are two completely different questions. Actually, I have three <laughs> questions on the table now. Okay, so the first one is, um, yes, I do remote view, not as regularly as I'd like because I'm spending more of my time telling people about it, informing them, and teaching them. But I do still get taskings, and I always do demonstration sessions for my students where they, I put them through the ringer for five five interfraction days. I give them one opportunity to put me through the ringer, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, they'll they'll do um, they'll do a uh, they'll come up with a target. I'm completely blind to it. They'll give me the target, and and you know. Often I'll I'll do a good job on it. I don't get it right all the time. Nobody ever does get it right all the time, right? And uh, in fact, so I I have this training set out that just came out, which I don't know we'll mention later. But I do a demonstration on that. Uh, right. They right. film me doing a demonstration session. So. Um, well, if someone were to, I saw the, and I I will link to the training sessions. There's four, I think, four CDs in a collection and you're basically yeah. in a class with real classmates and so you can kind of like learn along but how yeah. is your book going to conflict with that very class I so mean, it doesn't actually they're they're kind of complementary uh in fact kind of intended that way so the book doesn't really the book isn't intended as a manual it's not an instruction manual although that said there are two chapters in there yeah there are that's a, what i noticed yeah that's what yeah. i noticed yeah, it, it will give you a starting point. You can actually follow those instructions and do a remote viewing session or three or a dozen, however many you want, right, using those as guidance. Uh, they, it nice. does teach you a basic approach to remote viewing. Um, what the DVD set does is it gives you a much uh, finer-grained and a more rigorous approach to the, to the techniques and to the methodology. Um, essentially, it's a distillation of what Ingo Swan taught me, and then I teach my other classes. You know, I, I, God, 
face it, I, I don't have time to teach everybody in the world. <laughs> I, I figured out um, I can at most teach 48 students a year, given the way I do my training. And I've been approached by many, many times more than that. And finally, the people who did the production on it talked me into it. They said, look, you're, you're, you're very slowly winning over Converse remote viewing this way. You need to reach out and get more. I've, I've been kind of resistant to the, uh, to the home study remote viewing course for a long time, but I realized finally there are people who just can't, can't learn it. Uh, they don't have the resources or whatever can't come. They might as well have at least a chance to take a crack at it. And so a lot of the principles, the core principles that I teach in my class are in there, and I've never done this before. This is the first time I've ever uh, made public, actually, what I teach in the classes, and that's in in. That, that DVD set. So. Right. Well, Paul, you know, uh, yeah. real, real quick, guys, we have a caller on the line, uh, Chris Brown, who might want to take one of your classes. Chris, uh, you're on the line yep. with uh, Paul Smith. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Hey, good. Nancy, How about you? Bill, Angel, Hi, Chris. everyone. Hi, Hi Chris. Howdy, Chris. <laughs> well, I've been listening. It's been a good show. You know, um, I, I, uh, I've had my own little experience, mm-hmm. you know, as everyone knows, but um, I have epilepsy and I suffer from. Mm-hmm. from from big seizures and small seizures, and so um, yeah, I didn't know if you maybe have ever you know anybody that's ever done any re- remote viewing or you've tested or anybody that's that's maybe has the same thing has epilepsy too because um, you know I I really truly I, I don't get into it much um, with my seizures and my counter, but I but I truly believe in my heart that they that it, it played a, a yeah. huge key. And so, me channeling what happened, and and so um, yeah. Let me let me respond to that. Yeah, I don't. I have not met anyone in the remote viewing community who has epilepsy and and has worked with that to see what they that can do with their actual ESP experience. Sure. But I do know that, um, of course, you know the standard thing. People, you know, epileptics they have these hallucinations, right, when they're having their seizures and all that, and that's how mainstream science uh, characterizes hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Well, how do they know they're not legitimate? <laughs> how do mm-hmm. they know that that maybe some of those so-called hallucinations may not have veridical content that are actually mm-hmm. some kind of ESP connection? Um, you know, the same thing applies with hallucinogens, although hallucinogens are not very helpful in a ESP environment because they generate a huge amount of mental noise. It's still likely that to some degree they do loosen up your psychic faculties, so to speak, and allow you to get in touch with the signal line. If it wasn't well, for them it, overlaying it so much, that might right. be a useful approach. But Well, I wanted to ask, and this is a good place to ask, how do you screen people who are going to take your classes and then... There won't be any screening if they want to. I, it, it, it's not very expensive, the course. I think it's a few hundred dollars maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but those people are not going to be screened. They're going to have to determine if they, you know, are there people who cannot and should not take this class? or, or? Well, you know, that's, that's a, a difficult question. There probably are people who shouldn't, but who are they? I don't know. Um, the thing is, there, there was this rumor going on in the remote viewing community for uh, a while, and probably still shows up every now and again, based on false assumptions and, and, and false stories, actually, that remote viewing could make you crazy, right? 
Right. It, 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 remote viewing in and of itself is not going to make you crazy. If anything, it makes you more stable. <laughs> you know, it's because you get in better touch with who you are, with your, you get in better touch with yourself. You, to be successful in remote viewing, you have to be, you have to learn to be very honest with yourself, which is a great treatment for mental illness if you can do that, right? But, um, but if you have some underlying problem already, Right. It's not impossible that remote viewing, playing around with remote viewing, could trigger that. And you might have some kind of, uh, I don't know, what what the word, uh, psychic break or something. Not psychic well, break, uh, mental let, break or let's, whatever, you know. Let's get a little weirder. We're, we're coming up to a break in a few, about two minutes, but it, but this might take us there and over the break. Um I, ju- I got a message during the show, and this is a pretty common thing, that there's also the consideration that this is an actual evil thing to be pursuing, that, um, that this might be, uh, how did this feel? The work of it? the devil. No? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you're well, my yes, wife, that's what she would tell you. She'd tell you the work <laughs> of the devil, too. And, and Angel well, knows a little bit about that, too. So, uh, well, we have Diablo! Yes. We have a listener named Peter Ward. He's in mm-hmm. he's in discuss or discuss, and he's saying a lot of this developed after Nazi scientists were moved to America, et cetera, et cetera, and that's how the remote viewing came about. And well, that's it's not true. But that's not true. Okay, no, so go not ahead. at all. No, that has that that had nothing to do with remote viewing. Now, um, have you seen the movie uh, Men uh, Men Who Stare at Goats? Uh, that all also has nothing to do with remote viewing. That's well, right. <laughs> I was. I don't know if there's any truth to that at all. Time. Absolutely. Well, yeah, we well, let me answer Nancy's question here. And let's do talk about men who stare at goats in a little bit, okay? All right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who what think did, We have anything. to do that after the break, though, because we have about a minute before break. So, okay, that, so this seems like a long conversation. So, Well, okay, I could so get started. Got, Okay, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> Unless you have a short we'll question a... you want to ask me. No, no, no. Get started. We'll take a break. Then we'll come All back right. and we stare at goats. Okay. There so, so there are lots of people who think ESP and being psychic is, is somehow the work of the devil. And, and I think it's a, a, a result of misreading the Bible and faulty logic. Mm. Um, it's, I mean, there are plenty of instances in the Bible. That there's, in fact, a book out, and it's old now, it needs to be reprinted, called ESP in the Bible, which talks about many instances of ESP being used in the Bible by both the good guys and the bad guys, right? I That's think right. it's like like general human strength. You can use your abilities, your physical abilities, to rob a bank, or you can use them to rescue a child. And they're just abilities. There's no moral element to the abilities themselves. It's how you employ or how you use them. And I think the same applies to our innate intuitive abilities. Yeah. Okay. I totally agree. Bill will take us out right now, and then we'll be right back. Okay, so we are going to be right back with our guest, uh, Dr. Paul H. Smith, Major Smith Retired, uh, talking this time when we come back about Men Who Stare at Goats, the genesis of the book, the movie and Paul's thoughts about it. So stay with us. We'll back after this break. Hi, this is Solaris Blue Raven with Hyperspace on the Dark Matter Radio Network. Please tune in on Tuesdays for an intriguing show pertaining to covert technology, UFOs, paranormal, mysticism, and spirituality.
put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions, providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology, preventative maintenance and networking support, hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Hello, my name is Howard Hughes and I'm in London and I've been proud to bear this name all my life. Over here in the UK, I'm known as a broadcast journalist. I've been involved in some of the big stories of our time. The fall of the Berlin Wall. The death of Princess Diana. I told London about that. And on the first and second anniversaries of 9-11, I was there at Ground Zero, speaking to the people who were directly involved and those experiences I will never forget. So news is my thing. But my great love is my show, the one that I produce, The Unexplained. Over the years on this show, I've spoken to people like the late Al Bielik from the Philadelphia Experiment, Edgar Mitchell, the amazing Apollo astronaut, Dr. Stephen Greer, David Icke, and Uri Geller. People like Richard C. Hoagland have become personal friends over the years. I met him in London. So you can see that these sort of topics are what I like to discuss. Please join me on my show from London, The Unexplained, Monday nights on the Dark Matter Network. Thanks, everybody, for staying with us. We are now back in our final segment with our guest, Dr. Paul H. Smith, the author of a brand new book called The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. And Kevin's on the line with us. So, Kevin, um, say hello. Hello there. Um, Got a couple questions. Y'all were just talking with Chris, and of course, I'm blind. I asked this question of one other, two other remote viewers now. And I would assume you could have the opinion that being blind, I have had sight before, lost my sight about 17 years ago. So there would be no reason why a blind person who previously had sight could take this course, right? Um, I'd probably have to do it a little differently. I mean, it's based a lot on um, PowerPoint and and visual representation and stuff. So I'd, I'd probably have to have a special uh, class for blind people. But 
uh, in principle, a blind person should be able to remote view just as well as anybody else. It might be a little tricky to objectify. I mean, you're, you're going to have a little bit tougher time sketching and such. But you know what? Making a model out of clay or something, you should be able to do really well. So, um, you know, it'd be, I'd, I'd like to see this. We, we, not, I've not ever actually had any blind clients. but That's um, interesting. Yeah, I don't question, know if anybody... I, <laughs> question, Kevin, have, uh, have you ever seen or have you always been blind? Well, I've, I've, I had side, I'm 56, I had a side up until I was 38, so... Okay, so you, so you, you, you are familiar with objects and what things look like, colors, stuff like oh, that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You're not completely foreign to that. Uh, that. That's interesting, I mean, he knows what things look like, what's stopping him from learning remote viewing? Yeah, uh, I don't think anything is stopping, stopping him from learning it. In fact, uh -huh. uh, at one of the remote viewing conferences um, that I'm involved with every year, um, we had someone do a talk on teaching blind children to be psychic, essentially to be remote viewers. And I don't remember the details of that, but she reported having some good success with it. So, uh, you know, the, the, basically the, the equipment, if you want to call it that, should work perfectly well. The only trick would be in, you could verbalize, certainly you could verbalize what you're experiencing. And in fact, uh, that's probably the best way to do it is, if you're remote viewing, then you maybe record what you're doing. That gives a permanent record of, of your results, right? And then maybe the physical modeling, the 3D modeling, that's a very kinesthetic kind of a thing. You can do that whether you're blind or not, you know. So, Well, you um, don't have no, to be a, a, a good artist to be a remote viewer. Yeah. You, you can just be uh, a crazy sketcher, and a, a blind person can still draw, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be worth trying. I would, I would actually kind of be curious to see how well a blind person could remote view and and, and of course it yeah. wouldn't just be one because as with remote viewing some people do better than others you could get blind people some of whom would might be knocked out of the park remote viewers and then then one who you know, then someone who weren't you never know until you actually try it right so it'd be an interesting well, uh, if you'd be willing to uh comp me the class i'd be willing to be your guinea pig <laughs> you know um because it's something well, I've always been interested in from the aspect of um I I guess the best way to say this is consciousness. I believe there is a consciousness, a um world mm -hmm. consciousness, so to speak, or a human consciousness that we all feed into, like the Princeton egg study mm -hmm. uh claims ah, yeah. to have done. And if that's so, and we all tap into that in one way or the other, then, like you were saying earlier, we all should have the innate ability, at the very mm -hmm. least, to be able to do this. Well, mm -hmm. oh, well so. Paul, let me give a suggestion both to you and Kevin. You have two chapters um, which are exercises in kind of remote viewing at home is basically the two chapters, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what I would suggest, it's easy for me to suggest because I'm not going to do it, but what, <laughs> I would but what I would suggest, that's how I get along in life, but what I would suggest, true, true. what I would suggest is you record those chapters. You actually read those chapters, record them, and then let Kevin, I mean, that would be the core of your book if you wanted to do an audible version of your book. But then you actually 
send those chapters to Kevin and see, Kevin, if you can, by following those recordings, you're obviously working with somebody who's training you, basically. You, you're, you're enlisting the help of someone. By, by working through those recordings, what would your results be? And if you feel those results indicate a potential, then I would contact Paul and see what he thinks. You know, that does point up something. Um, I haven't thought much about uh, people who are vision impaired, you know, blind folks. I probably ought to do an audio version of ultimately both of my books. Yeah, I think so too. Useful. Yeah. yeah, I'm so su- I'm surprised that Macmillan never did your first book because they deal with brilliant audio. A uh, uh, brilliance is the name of their audio company. So, but then again, it's Torforge. But um, yeah. <laughs> but, but um, anyway, that would be that would be. But that's a suggestion, and and I really think you should. And if the chapters work i mean uh, that could be kind of a separate component as well that people can download from your website well it also gives a, a potential remote viewer a chance to see what a lesson looks like and if you just can't stomach it if you say oh i, I don't have the patience i'll never do this you'd know that ahead of time mm-hmm. but if you love it and you can kind of get it and you can follow instructions and it makes sense then you would know you might be a good candidate perhaps yeah, that's worth thinking about that's for sure yeah. Yeah, of course, cool. first I have to get the book out to begin with. Uh, it's going to be probably two weeks before it hits the street. So. Well, are yeah. you on pre- Are you in the warehouse now? Are you on press now? No, I, I am sending the, the, the digital file. In fact, it hopefully was uploaded today. Um, I've got my a book designer working on it, and and she uh, I sent her the upload instructions. So hopefully it will it got into the press today. So now they still have to do the you know the prototype and send it to me to make sure everything's right and right. that is delayed because I'm going to France for a week on Wednesday so I won't be back <laughs> actually it'll be the middle of the month before I have a chance to actually do anything with it so it's going to be at least two weeks maybe a little more before I have uh, real copies available so the fortunately the DVD set is available now but <laughs> but the book isn't so. And then, Where is the DVD set available at? Um, major bookstores or Amazon or? It's you know I don't know if it's on Amazon or not. See I don't do the 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 production of fulfillment end of it. You know I'm going to look it up right now. Well I've got it. I will make sure it's linked up to futuretheater.com. Um, your show notes and things because I was there there's a a really nice a little video that kind of brings you into the uh, it gives you a good idea of the quality of the DVD and uh, I mean it's one thing to to feel as though you're sitting in the class with the students which is great but it's the actual exercises themselves I think that it would be really helpful to to you know like describe what you mean by what, what we're all saying exercise what what would be a typical like you have well, to. What do you? What? What would be something? Yeah. For example, um, well, let me let me think. Um, a couple of things I can't do on the in the DVD world. Like um, I take my students on an actual field trip out to have a sensory experience in the in the in the real world. Right. You can't do that there. But an exercise that we do on the DVD, I think um, one is ideogram drills. For example, there's this. Um, there's this phenomenon in controlled remote viewing that you get a little squiggle. It's the as you put your pen on the paper when you 
after you, you take your starting number, you put your pen on the paper, your subconscious and your, your nervous system cause your hand to make a mark on the paper. Mm. And then you, um, then you decipher the information that you capture subconsciously while it's coming in. And um, I think, I believe we do some ideogram drills in the DVD. It's been a while since I watched the footage myself. So, um, but that would might be an example of an exercise we do. Another exercise and, might be, oh, go ahead. Well, by ideogram, you mean in this context, um, uh, like an upside down V would be an, a mountain. It's sort of a a, a grand abstraction. Well, not really. It's more like a. Um, it's more like a seismograph recording of the impact of the signal on your on your total physical self um, wow. that is somewhat informed by your subconscious so in other words it's a it's it's like an indicator but at the same time there is, it does convey some information so yeah well so are how, some signals stronger than others i'm sorry are, sig- are there s- such things as some signals that are very strong, or is it up to the remote viewer to be sensitive to pick things I up? Think, I think it's a sensitivity issue. I, I don't know that it, and, and again, you can't measure this, right? So I, I'm not sure that any one signal is more powerful than the other, but viewers seem to be more tuned in sometimes than others, right? So sensitivity, yes, you may be more sensitive to the signal on one occasion, so it comes through more strongly and maybe not quite as attuned the next time, so it doesn't come through quite as strongly. And, okay, and that, and that brings would be up, reflected in your session. Right, and that brings up drugs, caffeine. Uh, mm-hmm. We were talking about Mormonism. Mormon. Well, just caffeine mm-hmm. in general. Are you a Mormon uh, who never uh, has had caffeine, would you say? No, well, first off, there's a, a misunderstanding about Mormonism and caffeine. The things that Mormons aren't supposed to drink uh, are alcohol, black coffee and black tea. There's nothing that says anything about caffeine. Um, there was this, uh, this assumption, even in the Mormon community for a long time, that because black coffee and black tea have caffeine in them, that must be what's wrong, right? What's wrong? Right. But there's never been anything said that. And in fact, the church recently has clarified in saying, you know, caffeine drinks, there's nothing in what we call the word of wisdom. There's nothing in the word of wisdom that says that drinking caffeine drinks is wrong. You know, stick to what you've been told is wrong and and don't try and add things to the list. (laughs) Interesting. Well, okay. No, it's funny because uh, there was this uh, news clip um, uh, two years ago of Mitt Romney who was loading uh, cartons of soda into the back of his station wagon. Mm -hmm. And so one of the reporters asked you, hey, is that Coke? And he said, no, no, this is caffeine free soda. Uh, So uh that gave the impression yeah, see, there are Mormons who won't drink caffeine just because of that assumption that that's what's wrong with it, right? Now, the uh, actual principle is you're not supposed to consume things that would lead to being addictive or habit forming. It has to do actually with free will and free and agency more than anything, right? Right. right. Um, if you look at what's on the list that you're not supposed to partake of, all of them are in one way or another addictive or habit forming, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, so the goal is to avoid that. And caffeine, of course, can be habit-forming, and I have that. So, I see, it, it, so the goal is yeah. not to, uh, the goal has nothing to do with perception or consciousness or native ability to think, it, but it has to do with the addictive behavior of these things, the addictive potential. Yeah, that, that and, of course, basic health issues as well. I mean, the things that you're told not to partake of, like alcohol and tobacco, there are health consequences, all of those things. And, and right. generally speaking, 
alcohol actually in small quantities can be beneficial, but the word of wisdom is aimed at the, uh, the as it says, the weakest of the members, right? Um, mm-hmm. And frankly, many, many, many people have started drinking alcohol and can't quit. <laughs> right. You know, and they end up with serious health issues. But, well, I was uh, looking, I was thinking just in terms of, are, do some substances make it easier to remove you? Uh, yes. do subs- which, yeah. which is, I thought, where this was going to go, so that's good. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the fact of the matter is, um, central nervous system stimulants, at least as far as we have done any research on them, seem to enhance the process, which makes sense, right? Caffeine is a cognitive enhancer. I mean, that's why people like it. It, it makes you think more clearly and think faster and, right. and it keeps you awake when you're driving, whatever, right? But but it's a cognitive stimulant, as is um, a number of other things. So um, caffeine tends, appears to help the remote viewing process in a mild sort of a way. You can do it perfectly well without it, but some people feel like it enhances their their success. Uh, one, my old buddy, Bill Ray, I mentioned him earlier, uh, Bill was one of us that were trained by Ingo, and um, and he always remote views with a cup of coffee on the uh, on the desk where he's working. That's wow. just a fixture, you know. Uh, now that may be partly ritual. Uh, oftentimes we have little rituals that help us do better. We think. I mean, you see that all the time in the sports world, right? But the caffeine itself may play a role. Um, there's some there's you know, I don't know if nicotine does. I mean, obviously, that's a sinful nervous system stimulant as well. Maybe it does. I would prefer not to uh, have people experiment with that. <laughs> you know, here, here, take a drag on the cigarette. Let's see if you remote view better, you know. Of course. But, How about yeah. DMT or ayahuasca? Well, I, I, you know, I don't know. Well, first of all, doing playing with that in the United States is tough anyway, right? And ayahuasca, with everything else that goes with that, you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to focus on remote viewing. <laughs> right, you've got your diarrhea to deal with. Yeah, well, that's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that goes in the hallucinogen category, right? So I at at SRI, the folks who, of course, were developing this whole process, um, Hal Putoff and, and crew. That's where Ingo was working as well. Um, they had a policy not to involve hallucinogens, and the reason was. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, is because they generate mental noise, right? So you may, yeah, maybe you get on the psychic signal a lot better, but you're fighting so much additional mental noise that the question is whether you get anything, if you're able to perceive anything accurately or not. Wow, wow. And so true. they okay. figured it was better just to keep things clean and, and, you know, and be able to sort it out better. So go ahead. Okay, let me... Um, um turn this to 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 something else um remote viewing as a therapeutic exercise have you ever tried to or thought about trying to using uh, a remote viewing as uh, a methodology for dealing with you are retired army and you've seen combat dealing with former um uh, gis who've had uh who have ptsd so I had not thought about it in the PTSD context. I thought it more just in general terms. Um, I think remote viewing, first of all, gives you a better sense of self, 
right? Absolutely. It, it gives you, it, it helps you, first of all, it helps you realize you are more than just your physical body. Of course, our, our Western culture, informed as it is by science, has got this obsession with the idea that we're nothing more than biological machines, and, and that's Correct. it. When you're dead, you're gone, and all that, right? Well, remote viewing is a, is a perfect counterexample to that. I mean, if you can perceive and uh, describe a target that you have no physical access to, none of your senses, no radio, no television, nothing, completely blind, you're completely blind, on the other side of the planet, or even on another planet, um, that's strong evidence that our minds are more than our bodies, right? Mm-hmm. And so if, if that is true, then the human being is much more than a biological machine. And folks who are struggling with their demons, like, like folks with PTSD and such, I think that message, and not just the message, because you can hear a message and not believe it, but the experience really brings it home. Yes, this I am more than, than just this bag of bones and meat, you know. There is more to me than this, and that can really be a help, hopeful kind of a thing, it seems to me. So I've always, I, I don't say always, but I have definitely thought it could be therapeutic. Um, again, that's another whole area of exploration that, that so far we haven't been able to undertake. Well, there were three things that really impressed me about that. One, I've always thought, and I wrote a book on this, uh, that uh, called Wounded Minds, that uh, that PTSD is kind of, it is the downside of a cybernetic exercise, right? Like you have a trauma, and that trauma, um, if repeated, hits a certain portion of your brain. So in that rear part of the animal part of your brain, that fight or flight thing that controls your autonomic nervous system, a stimulus that uh, is resonant with the memory of the trauma causes you to react in certain fight or flight ways so that a lot of Vietnam vets, for example, are very, very cautious about entering heavily wooded areas. A lot of vets Mm -hmm. from um, uh, Gulf Wars 1 and 2 from Afghanistan, uh, where they've had IED experiences, are very, very reluctant to go out in the desert. There's one guy in Fayetteville, North Carolina, uh, who's now in jail, unfortunately, who's now in jail, unfortunately, who... um, who basically is uh, having a problem with dealing with um, crowds because it was mm-hmm. among crowds where his unit came under fire. So mm-hmm. I'm just so my thinking is that if you could get outside of that cybernetic loop, which PT, which um, remote viewing takes you out of that cybernetic loop, you can find something else that will ease that pain of the trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I'd I'd like to actually see it uh, attempted. I don't know exactly how to set something like that up, and I'm not sure if you might not have to have some kind of uh, certification or license to do it. But, you know, there's folks out there who do who are also interested in remote viewing. It would be an intriguing thing to undertake. Well, let's just say, for example, again, ideas but no actions. Let's just say that you and John Alexander who's been working with PTSD sufferers, um, got together and found a group that uh, would be willing to volunteer. So this would not be a treatment option as much as this would be an educational option. The treatment option on human subjects requires state certification and kind of NIMH 
approval. But let's just say that you decided to do this as um, <clears throat> educational. You are mm-hmm. teaching people how to um, experience new things. Then, if you had a group who were willing, and maybe it wouldn't have to be all combat vets, because I'm thinking of a location where we could do this, you could do this. Uh, um, uh, um, and so that might work. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm chairman of the board of a, uh, a counseling center in downtown LA, and I'm just wondering if that might be the location, because they deal with police, they deal with gang violence, they deal with a lot of things, and, and they deal with a lot of PTSD, I know, because I know the general manager very well. And um, that might be a place to try it. I will make some inquiries for you. Okay, uh, but uh, wait till I get back from France. No. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, I, I wouldn't. Well, this has nothing to do with this has nothing to do with men who stare at goats, but it sort oh, of does. Ask your you know, question. Well, my it's not a question so much as uh, we interviewed Jimmy Channon a while ago, and 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 he was on the cover of UFO magazine uh, in an article and a series about his program for the army. It was sort of the whole Earth catalog comes yeah, to the, the army. The, yeah, the uh, Earth Battalion the, one. Yeah, Earth first Earth Battalion. Battalion. First Earth yeah, Battalion. First Earth Battalion. Battalion. Well, yeah. how did that uh, on the history uh, on a history chart or a history? Um, mm-hmm. How did remote viewing? Where was remote viewing happening when Jimmy Channon was doing all this stuff in the army? Were they? Did they meet? Did they crisscross? No, no, they didn't. Um, that that's the funny thing about men who stare goats. Is it has the Jim Shannon character, who is uh, Bridges, uh, Jeff Bridges, right? Right. Many people remote view. Well, right, right. Uh, Jim, who's a great guy, <laughs> I've met him several times and and have known about him. He for is. Decades. He's a good guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have so many friends in common. But I wanted to go visit him in Hawaii, but my son left the Big Island, so I never got over there. But um, the problem is that um, he. Um, he was doing this for third battalion stuff, but he wasn't uh he wasn't involved in the remote viewing program. He didn't have the right clearances and he wasn't in the right spot. And yet in Men Who Stare at Goats, it shows him teaching people remote viewing. Well, it just mm-hmm. didn't happen that way, you know. What what happened, what what that the book that, that came from and then the movie itself, what happened was they took uh they took a whole bunch of stories and strung them together in a way that made it exciting but didn't reflect the truth. Uh-huh. Um, essentially cherry-picked stories and then got rid of anything that didn't meet their particular framework that they wanted to portray, both in the book and in the film. Now, I have to say, both the book and the film were very entertaining. I, I read the book on the elliptical, and it really made the time go fast. Hmm. Um, the film, I laughed at all the way through. It was hilarious, except for a couple of things I thought were just really kind of stupid, actually. But uh, free, Freeing the, uh, the insurgents along with the goats, I thought was a really bad idea. But whatever. Anyway, um, it, it just wasn't that way. It, it it didn't portray history in any accurate light whatsoever. It was more an entertainment kind of thing. So I mean, I, I mean, was fascinated, fascinated at the story, 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 story. Whoa, something happened. Oh, I don't know what happened to Bill there. Uh, we had was to we'll Bill? reconnect him. That was. I think the uh, the aliens were actually taking Bill there. No, no, no. Nope. You better. I, we have to reconnect you. <laughs> I'm telling you, he's he's about to get probed. Be, I actually kind of kind of think I like him that way, you know. <laughs> right? No, no, no. There's this guy, Guy Savilli, who basically there he did, is. No, yep. I'm here. Who basically did get <laughs> death touch? 
according to John Alexander, that there really yeah. was something called the death touch. And, yeah. um, and, and it, it worked. I mean, it's very Eastern, but um, it mm. seemed to work. Well, Paul, yeah. since we're, we're going into the past, could you tell folks how were you tapped for this program? Did you have skills the Army saw in you, or did, you, did they teach you this? They taught it to me. Yeah, I, I had uh, no known psychic abilities whatsoever. In fact, I had been in a junior high science fair ESP project that I totally bombed. So I pretty uh-huh. much decided I was not any good at it, if it even existed. And I was a little bit dubious that it even existed. So I, I guess you could say I was a mild skeptic about it. Um, and they, I had no demonstrated abilities. What I did have was a certain profile that matched people that had been successful in the past. So they were looking for, for Army intelligence officers with certain criteria. So, for example, you had to already be established in your career and done a decent job there. You had to be above average intelligence, which, of course, is no big deal because most of the people in military intelligence are, right? So uh, you had to, you know, various things like that. But then the, the kicker, the powerball, if you will, was you had to be um, – you had to be interested in some kind of creative pursuit that was out of the ordinary for the military. So essentially a right brain activity, such as Mm -hmm. uh, studio art or music or languages qualified as well, or creative writing. And and it so happened that I was active in all four of those areas. I mean, I'd I'd been an Arabic linguist. I'd studied Hebrew. I was fluent in German. So I had languages. Um, I had majored in art at BYU until I was, well, I had three years of art and illustrated a number of books and science papers and stuff, and I discovered you can't raise a family as an artist, so I went into the Army <laughs> instead, which is just as bad. <laughs> but, but uh, And I played guitar for decades and, and, uh, and wrote lots of science, or not science fiction, lots of short stories that got rejected. So I wasn't very good at creative writing, but at least I was interested in it. You know? At least you tried, yeah. Yeah. So, so they found that out about me, and that's what um, what motivated them to give me a chance. Well, what did um, you think found- of the training when they first when they first started with you? How did did you remain a skeptic for the first few months or the first few days? I actually kind of got over being a skeptic when they told me the government was spending money on the, on a program like that. <laughs> yeah. Now, I I I once I got over it. I, I sort of. Uh, set my skepticism aside. I didn't let go of it yet until I actually saw it work and had actually had it work for me as well. When that happened, I stopped being a skeptic because at that point you have evidence, right? Um, and well, and I think the most phenomenal thing about remote viewing is wherever the place where you go to get this information, it seems to be if it's available to remote viewers, it's available to anybody. And what is that? Is you know, I like to think of it as the collective unconscious, conscious, the collective unconscious, the yes. akashic record, something like that. God, what is it that you tap into? I, I really, I think you've come the closest. The force. To describing, yeah, to describing it. What, what well, do you think you're hooking into? Ingo Swan, uh, in the theory, I, I say Ingo Swan because he's the one that taught us, but he and Hal and, and other folks at SRI kind of put it together generally, but um, he called it the matrix. Um, so the interesting thing about this is that predates any use of the matrix in popular culture, right? This was long before there were ever any matrix movies mm. or any talk about it from that. He called it the matrix. Right. and 
in a way, it's kind of like the Akashic Records, but not quite. It, it's you can think of it as kind of a uh, a huge database in hyperspace where all the information there is about the universe resides. Uh, well, have fact, you ever tried to go be... to it, to the center of it, or anything like well, that? There, have you ever? No, because it, it's not there. There's not a center to it. It's not something that you can go to the center of. It's just a mass of information. But he, he even speculated that it was just the universe itself. But it mm-hmm. taken at the entangled level, the quantum, you know, the quantum level, the uh, quantum non-local. Well, a quantum level, entanglement, but, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that was one of the speculations. I, I have a, I have a different opinion about that, but we're we don't have enough time for me to get into that. I don't think. But the fact nope. is that the, well, you, you can access, touch on it. Yeah, the the fact is that this matrix is essentially thinking in a, just a kind of a gen, general way is just a collection of all the information you go there and get it. I don't know if that's really what happens, but it's a good model to help people learn it. Um, yeah, I'm not even sure what I believe about this. Um, is it is there a matrix you go to? Maybe. Um, do you just go and get the information? When I say go, mm-hmm. you don't really go there. Your mind just accesses it. Is it like that? And it's just you go wherever the information is and you get it. Do you do it that way? Are we talking dimensionally? Like uh, like I think it was Angel suggested earlier, right? Are we doing that? Uh, right, I. Right. I'm actually almost an agnostic on this. At this point, I don't think you can know, right? I am fairly confident it's not non-locality, though, at least quantum non-locality, because the kinds of information you get and the kinds of experiences you get um, don't fit into an entangled model at all. Whoa. Uh, You know, entanglement doesn't allow you to go back to... Say again. Okay. No, you just you sounded like you got entangled there for a second. There, there Do was you like want a, to quickly recap what we said there because uh, it, it completely faded out. Can you reconnect, Angel? Okay. No, no, I, he's on. I, no. Oh, you're, you're okay. You're on. Yeah, he okay. came back on. Okay. He came back on. But okay. He, for like a split second, they like there was a few words that sounded like he was melting. He was entangled. <laughs> right, right, right. It's just the bandwidth, but we're all back and we're fine. We yeah, you're back, have, you're back, you're good. And we only have two more minutes, so. Well, we, have, no, we, have, we have about five more minutes, I think, right? No? Three, no, we do no, not. No, we, we got three and a half more minutes. Okay, well then, uh, let me <laughs> that at futuretheater.com, you can link up and you can find all this information. You can find... Um, yes, yes, yes. I think the free, even a free dowsing DVD might still be there. I'm not sure. But you can find all this information, including mm-hmm. uh, Paul's sites, and uh, you know, and just come back in a week, yeah. I guess, and then we'll have the link for the real book, the new book. Let, let me uh, let me toss out the URL, though, just for those who don't necessarily have – well, I guess they have to have access to the Internet. Anyway, it's, it's very easy. It's a remoteperception.com. Those two words together, remoteperception.com. And uh, right. that'll take you to the DVD set. Um, uh, and, I, you know, um, we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, I'd, I'd like to actually hear from folks who do the DVD and see how, what kind of progress they get make on yes. that. Yes, yes. Well, has it been out very long, the DVD? About a month, I think. Ah, so you have no real, yeah. cool. no real results yet. Yeah, and you know, I think it's really good. I think it's very effective, but 
I'm not on the other end. I already know this stuff, you know. So, mm-hmm. so the best judge is somebody who has not tried it before and and gets the DVD and go uh, the DVDs, I guess, and goes through all four of them and and then lets me know how they do. I'd be very uh, interested Paul, in getting a review. Here's a question: of it. Are, Would you think mm-hmm. about ever releasing an audio-only version of the DVDs uh, instead of visually, you know, showing remote viewing, but audio for per- folks like Kevin who are blind? You know, um, I have no control over that, but I'm happy to make the suggestions of the people who put the whole thing together. Um, see what they have to say about it. It might work. I, I would start. Be... I would start. I would start with the two exercises that you already have in the book, since they're not bound with any other entity except yourself, and right, see right. how people respond to that. Just those two chapters. See how people respond to that, and then you can always modify the chapters add material to them, and even add more advanced experiments. But what I liked about those two chapters specifically was, one, is that anybody could do this at home. It's very, very, and you give all the instructions. It's a very, very simple exercise that, it, that, that will give you positive feedback if there is positive feedback to receive. And the second exercise is, is more advanced and more involved but again, it's something anybody can do. And when I read it, I said these lend themselves to an audio version to explain mm-hmm. it. So that's mm-hmm. what I'd recommend. And here we okay. go. This is it. So I want to thank uh, Dr. Paul H. Smith um, for coming on the show, for talking about his new book. And again, the, uh, the title of the book is The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing, Have a Safe Trip to Paris. And again, thanks for joining us. And um, for everybody else, we will be back next week. I think we're going to have open lines next week. We're not sure, but we'll be back next week. We are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Good night, everybody, and thanks, Paul. And thank you, Angel. And thank everybody. Stay tuned for Mm -hmm. Art Bell. We are future. Nick Redfern is the guest. Ah, Nick Redfern. It's going to be great. Okay, so... Um, Midnight in the Desert is next with Nick Redfern and we are Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. Thank you, Angel. We will see you all. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Chris. We'll see you all next week. Good night, folks.